Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless. So while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to today's broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Steve Lassard, and I'll be your host. Today we are privileged to have Tara Brock joining us. Tara is broadcasting from Virginia, while I and the entire Soundstrue team are all here in our Colorado studio. Welcome, Tara. It's great to be with you, Steve, and wow, it's really very wonderful to feel you all out there. I'm so glad we're doing this, and I'm really grateful for your questions. They were incredibly, re really alive and good. And thanks, Steve and Jeremy, for all your collecting and organizing. Um, so what I've done is um, built in your questions to this session. Um, I wanted to start with a pause, because I always love pausing, and, and a genuine namaste, uh, a genuine bowing and honoring all the beautiful hearts that are with us. You know, I really, uh, I always love starting with namaste, that sense of how the sacred lives through us all. And uh, this is kind of a carrying forth from last session with Jack, how it affirms this basic goodness that's here. And I, I think of it as that the prerequisite to namaste uh, comes from the Western gesture, as most of you know, probably the handshake that in some way is communicating, you're safe with me, I'm not carrying a weapon. And I think of that as, um, and this is the lead into our session, that, that say, you're safe with me, I'm not carrying blame, hatred, anger, as the uh, way of creating the groundwork for really opening our hearts to each other. So this session, as you know, it's releasing the weapon of aversive judgment and blame. And I really think of it as the primary uh, domain of suffering that is kind of pervasive. Our students, ourselves, in, in our personal relationships, in our workplace, societal level, a lot of suffering, this, this perception of others being wrong or bad in some way and staying hooked on blame. And, and we'll talk about it both in the more highly charged ways when there's anger and unforgiveness from a really deep wounding, but also, and I feel like this is so important, it's that chronic, the kind of chronic resentment, let's say towards your partner or your teen or whatever, they're not doing their part. They're letting me down. It's so corrosive to real intimacy. We can sense it how when, we're, when we have that blaming, that mood of blame, it's very hard to just uh, be tender or be spontaneous. There's kind of a wall. And on the bigger level, I really think of the whole move towards healing the planet, towards peace as us, our students, deepening our intention to disarm our hearts, really, to let go of blame and othering. So this session will build on the past ones that we've done uh, on conflict and anger. We'll look at how do you recognize when you're in trance? How do we get our students alert to when they're in a trance of blame? And then how do you decondition it? How do we use the two wings of mindfulness and, and compassion to uh, really shift us from this um, kind of limbic, fight, flight, freeze, to namaste. How do we let go of blame? There's, 
I want to share with you a reading from Ram Dash that I came upon recently that I really liked. He writes this. He says, when you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all these different trees. And some of them are bent, and some of them are straight, and some of them are evergreens, and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree and you allow it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light, and so it turned that way. And you don't go get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. And the minute you get near humans, you lose all that. And you're constantly saying, you're too this, or I'm too this. That judging mind comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them just the way they are. Just to pause for a moment, and you might even close your eyes and let yourself collect a little with the breath and arrive more fully right here. And just sense your inner life like those trees, just what it would be to really let this life inside us be just as it is. and to sense the people of our life, like trees, conditioned by all sorts of different forces and causes, and wow, just letting them be trees, letting them be who they are. And then knowing, as Ramdas says, we forget, and even being forgiving towards that, because that's part of the deal too. If you'd like, you can open your eyes. And one of the first questions I'll, I'll share with you is really how to explore blame with others as teachers and also as a friend, as, as a partner. How do, you, how do you explore it without causing defense? Um, one person called, described working on blame for so long, <clears throat> now considering themselves a blame police and, and that that's not it. So we can see how much conflict arises out of blame. You know, I, I've worked with so many couples where uh, somebody will, you know, will, will say something blaming, the other will respond, well, you're blaming me for speaking my truth. And then the response will be, well, yeah, but your truth is making me wrong. And you can see the cycles it gets into. So how do we explore the arising of blame without making ourselves wrong for getting hooked on it. And one of the ways I think of it that's so helpful is really using that evolutionary perspective that blame is an expression of fight in the fight, flight, freeze, stress response. It's rigged into every one of us to blame. Judgment, anger, blame, it's just a universal part of our response to feeling threatened. You know, the, if you one the question, what's the genesis of genesis of this trance of blame uh, came up also? How come it's so pervasive? Somebody sent me this. They said, according to popular legend, blaming began in the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent, alas for him, didn't have a leg to stand on. So now, don't blame me for the. <laughs> for this little quip because it was sent to me, but it seemed to fit. It really is existentially universal that um, we feel a sense of our separate self, that separate self, you know, the primal mood of the separate self is to feel fear and vulnerability. And when we feel threatened, it's part of our survival equipment. We have these, we're designed to do this. We have an orienting response, which seeks the source of the potential trouble. That is wired into us. So as soon as we feel threatened, we seek the source. What's to blame? And so what happens is it, it is we aim it and say something's wrong, and then we go either you're wrong and bad or I'm wrong and bad. So this, this is the fight response, and it comes up with perceived threat. And then, of course, due to our negativity bias, we're often scanning for what's wrong, and therefore there's a strong leaning towards feeling endangered and blaming. And then you can see it, of course, on a societal level, that we have the most threat, therefore blame, 
towards those that are the most different from us. There was some research that I read last week that came out that friends, those that are most like us, have the most similar brainwave patterns. And you can tell by just looking at brainwave patterns who you can predict totally statistically significant who's going to be friends. So we, we affect where our blame goes primarily to groups who have different views from us politically, let's say. We know that. Different sense of morality, different, we, those of different race, religion, and so on are most likely to be perceived as threats to our safety and most likely to be the target of our blame. On the individual level, the bad other is the one not meeting our needs. We have these basic needs for safety, gratification, and connection, and when somebody doesn't meet those needs, they become the bad other and the target of blame. Now, there are some really good questions about the difference between really healthy anger and then the trance of blame. And this is something when you're teaching is really important to help people see because so often uh, part of the bad rap against blame is that we shouldn't be angry. So anger is intelligent. We've all been wounded by others and many have been emotionally or physically abused. Whole populations have been devalued and systematically oppressed. So what that means is that anger with, it, with its bodily feelings and it, mental stories of wrongdoing, it alerts us, it mobilizes us to deal with obstacles. We need anger, and initially we need that orienting response of blame. Oh, the trouble's over there. There's, there was a really a handful of questions about trauma, especially if we've been traumatized, um, that what happens when we're traumatized is there's a kind of freeze response in other words, there's that powerlessness. Anger and blame are needed to mobilize us to then respond, to, to get out of the stuck-freeze response. So if we suppress anger, if we prematurely forgive, we're not going to fully attend to our wounds and protect ourselves from more harm. It becomes trance, unhealthy anger, a trance of blame when the on button jams and all the stories of blame go on and on. So we're continually fueling the anger. And then there's this unwise reactivity where we withdraw or lash out or whatever. So the way I think of it is that blame and anger harden into armoring around our heart when the on button's on a lot. It's like a scab that it just doesn't fall off and it prevents the light and warmth of awareness from healing us. A question that followed up on this is, how can I support someone to let go of blame when in fact, blaming is a strategy that feels good and empowering to them? So I want to name that in the trance of blame, it does, it's like a temporary fix. It's our easiest pathway to feeling more superior, feeling power. And yet, when we deepen attention, and this is our guiding with our, with our students, we start sensing how much it is a temporary fix and how it really blocks us from what, we most, what most matters to us in our life. When I'm working with students, I often use the language of unreal other because the central element in the trance of blame is that our perception of the other person narrows. And we're only seeing wrongness, and they become unreal to us. And if we look closely, and this is to me what's so interesting, and this is what really impacted me. So working with blame be has became a real sadhana, a real um, ongoing practice for me, was not only are we creating an unreal other, but in the moments of blame, we really are an unreal self. We are not connected to our own wholeness. We're in that some limited uh, story of a, of a victimized self. And one of the um, practices, you know, because I got a lot of questions of, well, how do we guide students when they're, you know, when they're caught in this? I do a practice often, and I'll just 
run you through it briefly so you get a sense of it, where they can start waking up to the fact of how blame is impacting their perceptions. And so um, if it helps you to close your eyes as I walk you through this, please do. But this is a reflection on unreal other and unreal self when we're blaming. So as we pause together, you might let your attention go inward and, and scan a bit for a recent conflict with a family member or friend, partner. Situation where you did feel in the grip of blame, resentment, anger. Now, view this as a movie. So you kind of run through the situation some, including what triggered in that particular episode, what triggered things. And then when you get to the real high point of tension, where you're really feeling caught and angry, that's where you freeze the action. Noticing where you are, noticing how the other person looks and sounds. And in those moments, noticing what you're most focused on. Is it a facial expression from them communicating anger, aversion, or vengefulness, disrespect? Or is it words or tone of voice conveying? those emotions. What are you believing is going on at that moment about how they're relating to you? And just sense in that focus on what's going on in those moments, whether you can sense that they're an unreal bad other. That you're just looking at a slant, a fragment. And then just for a few moments, you might sense what happens when you try to imagine the challenges they face. That they might be feeling themselves hurt, disapproved of, disliked, stressed, anxious, down on themselves. And what happens when you remind yourself of the things you value about them, that, you, that make you care about them, the ways they can be kind or loving or helpful? creative or engaging. And take a few moments to, to shift your attention to yourself. How do you imagine you look when you're caught in blame and anger? How do you imagine you sound? How does your body feel and your heart feel? You sense yourself in the role of an angry or hurt victim, or maybe a self-righteous judge or a threatening aggressor. What's the role you're in? And most important, do you like yourself this way? Is this who you really are? What are you forgetting in the moments of anger, blame, about your own pain and vulnerability? Or about your goodness? What matters to you? Can you sense how you've been caught in an unreal self, kind of cut off from your own wholeness? 
So this is a way, these kind of questions are a way of helping people to see that they've shrunk and are not really inhabiting their wholeness and that the other person in their mind has shrunk into an unreal other. Now there's other signs of trance. One friend calls it anger, blame, ready to happen. When we're really in the trance of blame, very easily triggered by sound, the tone of voice, an offhand comment, someone keeps us waiting. And it's way out of proportion to what's actually occurring. We often assume others are judging us, taking advantage of us. This is the habit of, of blame. Sometimes you might have this experience of feeling blame or upset with a number of people at the same time and then realizing there's one common denominator, and that's moi. <laughs> I certainly have that. The deal is when we're in the trance of blame, it'll play out in many of our relationships, even if we're mostly fixated on one. Now, we're going to be shifting. This is first part is really identifying some of the trance of blame, but shifting to, towards how do we undo it? How do we support people, our students, in undoing it? And I think one of the first pieces is to honestly acknowledge that it's hard, that it's a great idea. We think of forgiveness, great idea, until we have something to forgive. And so an important inquiry is what makes us hold so tightly to blame? And that's a really important one to investigate with our students. Uh, one person from our group asked the question, what are we protecting in our deeper vulnerable selves when we are stuck in blame and attack? There's a wonderful quote from James Baldwin, and it's, I imagine, he says, that one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So again, the, when you're teaching, there are ways of, of asking questions that help people to sense under the armoring of blame, what is that vulnerability? And I often will ask a question as part of reflection. I'll say, um, you know, to bring to mind again, as we just did, someone you habitually feel anger and blame toward. Okay, that's the way I usually frame it. And then I ask them to ask themselves, you know, if I considered, if I let go of thinking of this person as bad or wrong, what unpleasant feelings would I have to feel? In other words, if I let go of blame, of considering this person as bad or wrong, what's the unpleasantness I'd be faced with? And then what I do, I'll ask that question, have them reflect on it, and then if in the group, I'll just have people raise their hand and just say a word. And I think we did it with our group. And what's so powerful is we start getting a sense of the whole constellation of vulnerable feelings that are under our armoring of blame. Feelings of powerlessness, of deficiency, the fear that the other will keep on hurting me. Um, if they're not wrong, then I'm wrong. Just the vulnerability, the hurt, the sense of having to accept a painful loss then. Grief, feeling unlovable, unsafe. So we blame because it temporarily works. And that's a, it's really helpful when we're teaching about blame is to say it's an armoring that temporarily helps us, it buffers that vulnerability. It's a armoring that we can, some, in some moments, inflates us, makes us feel superior, or, or righteous, or justified, gives a sense of power. So that's why we hold on so much. But I find that there's also other reasons people hold on to blame that are really helpful to explore when we teach. And they mostly come down to misunderstandings about forgiving. For instance, one person in our M MMTCP group said, if we don't blame, then there's no way to hold accountability or make any changes that correct behavior and protect ourselves and others from harm. So that's, that's an interesting one, that this belief that forgiving sacrifices justice. That's somebody else's words, not mine. So in teaching, you might encourage uh, looking at the difference between blame, which is an aversive accusation, and wise discrimination that sees, oh, this person is causing harm. 
but doesn't add the aversiveness of blame and badness. Because it's natural that, that anger and blame arise because they draw our attention to what's going on. But if we stay in them, we're not able to really respond to the circumstances in the most intelligent way. We're not able to move towards, you know, get, help the person move towards true accountability, help have them make reparative actions. So one of the misunderstandings that forgiving or releasing blame is in some way gonna condone harmful behavior. So the important thing to, in ways of kind of correcting this, is to say, when we forgive, when we let go of blame, we're in no way saying what you did is okay. As one person put in a question, we're not saying you can keep on hurting me. We can forgive a friend for betraying our confidence and create wise, good boundaries by no longer sharing what's private. You know, we can forgive an ex-partner for emotional abuse and choose never to be alone with them. We can forgive a therapist or teacher for ethically inappropriate and harmful behavior, but also inform the proper authorities. So I think you understand that we don't need to be having a verse of blame in order to take good care. Another question that came up really had to do with activism. You know, how does, if we let go of blame, are we gonna be able to really make a difference in the world? And so, so being very clear that forgiving doesn't mean passivity or inaction. I mean, you can forgive politicians. It's not easy, but you can, who are responsible for harming vulnerable people or destroying Earth's ecosystem and then throw yourself totally into supporting the movements, the activities, the leaders that reflect your values. Like I always think we can seek justice and reparation for oppressed people, but release the hatred or blame towards those who are benefiting from and perpetuating the oppression. We don't need to hate and blame to make a difference. So now to move more fully into how do we guide people in forgiving? When someone's caught in blame, whether it's the more kind of chronic resentments or the deep lack of an inability to forgive because of a deep wound, how do they start moving in that direction? And in my own work with myself and with others, I've kind of brought it into three stages or three steps. And the first step is awakening this intention to forgive. That's critical. It has to matter. We're not going to do the hard work of forgiving. The next is making the U-turn and shifting from the outward blame to bringing real, the two wings of, of compassion and deep mindful attention to what's going on inside us. That's the piece where we're looking under the armoring and going towards the vulnerability. And after we've done that, we can widen the lens and see each other more truly, see a real other and open our hearts. So I'm just gonna take them piece by piece and give you a little bit of a sense of when I'm working these three steps with somebody, um, I know many students who feel like they should be forgiven. And they see their anger and blame as a kind of um, a flaw, as kind of an embarrassing comment on their spiritual development. Um, and yet, forgiving isn't something our ego can dictate. It's, in fact, self-judgment and shame about our blaming or our lack of forgiveness actually makes it more difficult. What I really like to communicate is that you can't will forgiveness, but you can be willing. That feels really important, a really important understanding, because in each of us, beyond our ego, there is a wisdom that knows that until we let go of the armoring around our hearts, we can't be happy, we can't love freely. So there is something in all of us that knows that if we want to be having a free heart, we really need to let go of blame. And, and reflecting on that with others can help to nourish their intention, nourish their intention to forgive. And I'll 
I'll just give you a little sense of um, a kind of way that I often will guide a reflection to nourish that. And again, if it be helpful, um, you can take a pause and close your eyes. Let your attention go inward. And perhaps bring back to mind a person that you uh, that you were reflecting on earlier that you might be pushing away with some blame or some resentment. And as we explored earlier, just sensing into how when you're inside the blame, when it's possessing you, how you get small or more rigid. What happens to your heart? How you're really forgetting your own gold, that gold of your own uh, capacity to care, to be open-minded, to connect. And also forgetting the others. You might even call on the wisest, most loving place in you right now. I sometimes consider our most evolved or future self. And just imagine what it would be like to have the heart space of your future self that can include this person. Just a taste of the freedom that's possible. The heart space of your future self, including this person. You might even bring the person to mind and mentally whisper, my intention is to forgive you. You just call them by their name. My intention is to let go of blame. And see if you can feel the sincerity of your intention, even if some parts of you are still unready. You can trust if the intention is there, the door is already opening to having a forgiving heart. And taking a few full breaths and opening your eyes as you would like. So on purpose in this uh, session with you, I'm, I'm trying to kind of do a real practical hands-on. These are, um, some of the reflections that help people get in touch with how small they get when they're in blame and the intention to really free themselves. So that's, that's step one, is uh, just that it matters, that I want to let go of blame. Step two when we're working with students is to guide them in what I call the U-turn, which is really so basic in so much of our practice, to sense the, the blaming thoughts and disengage by bringing the attention fully to what's here inside us, making that U-turn from thoughts to what's inside us, our inner experience, and bringing the two wings of, of compassion and mindful presence to what's under the blame, as I mentioned. And then, again, as, as we begin to bring a, a deep healing presence to the more vulnerable places inside us, uh, we open and inhabit a more free state of being where there's room for the other. And we can begin to see the other person more clearly. We begin to look through the eyes of our most awake self and we can see their unmet needs and we can see their suffering. You probably remember that wonderful little metaphor of the dog, the person going to had a dog and the dog lurching at them and then finding out that the dog's leg had been in a trap. And then the response is, oh, you, you, it goes from anger at the dog and blame to, oh, you poor thing. But the, you don't necessarily go and pet the dog because you're not, you still have your boundaries, you're taking care of yourself, but your heart's not blaming. And then you can start figuring out what to do. Well, with others, once we've taken care of our own vulnerability, brought compassion, we can start seeing, oh, that person's vulnerable too. 
and we can start sensing how to respond. By way of example, um, this is a recent one, it's kind of fresh on my mind, a man I was working with who's uh, an editor in a publishing, one of the major publishing houses, and his boss, a senior editor, really brilliant woman, fantastic writer, terrible manager, you know, team leader, et cetera. And so he, as he described her, she never expresses appreciation or she's a very critical person, very driven and would ask last minute, uh, make last minute demands that require that he, you know, stay late or take, take work home to do it right. She'd give him projects and then interrupt them with another poorly organized, you know, she's just very poorly organized and defensive. So uh, this person's friend uh, was admitting that he, that he had a real chip on his shoulder, um, that he sometimes dreaded going to work and all the joy was removed from it and it was really stressful. And because of finances, he couldn't leave. So in, in his meditation, he really got clear that his feeling of being okay was entirely hitched to how this woman was treating him. And he felt like he was moving through the day with this tight, defended heart, feeling victimized, doubting himself, grim, you know. So I walked him through the three steps because I found them so useful. That, that, and the first step, he got it from his meditation. He didn't want to live in that small, unreal self, that blaming, victimized self. So his intention was to free himself. And, and we talked about the U-turn of going from blaming her to really investigating in the body what was going on, how his gut was clenched and this, the heat and pressure in his chest, you know, the, the voice of the place that was, was most, uh, you know, aggravated was that it, how unfair things were and he was being taken advantage of but then he really got it that it was disrespect and it brought up self-doubt and he said that's it that was what came when he was really bringing mindfulness inside him it connected with feeling disrespected by his father not valued so then when he inquired really what does this place need um, need to feel valued you know, remember there's always an unmet need when we're blaming so that's what he did. That his practice was to, to nurture, to bring compassion. You can hear the, the language of rain behind this inwardly when he made the U-turn. And in some deep way, honoring his own care and confidence and wholeheartedness and how he, what he brought to his work and his real intention to serve. That helped. He just offering that inwardly helped relax him. She was no one, he wasn't hooked so much by her. And it helped him to look and see her better, you know, to see the kind of stress she was living with, internally generated and externally, her fear of failure, as some know the publishing industry, they often discard the senior layer of editors and pay uh, less experienced editors less. So, and she was very perfectionistic and the pain and squeeze of that. So he began to wish her more ease and he was able to talk with her without blame. You know, he, he found a way to, uh, with sensitivity to both of them, he, would, he told her, you know, you have really high standards and it matters to me too. And I want to support in the best way I can. And here's what will help me do that. And, you know, so he talked about not having the overtime and about not interrupting ongoing projects. And the upshot of it was, there was some shift, but it was really imperfect. I mean, it, a lot still continued to trigger him, but he found that each time he got triggered, um, he came to a, an increasing sense of freedom that he didn't have to stay locked in the, the victim, that he was more and more resting in a place of um, inhabiting a sense of his own uh, valuing himself and trusting his goodness and capabilities and he was able to go through the day with more humor, he said. He just wasn't as hooked, more creativity. And I bring that up because sometimes wise action doesn't make things better. And sometimes people keep behaving like they're behaving. And maybe there's no way to control that. Maybe we're stuck in a situation where somebody's behaving in a way that triggers us. Remembering that possibility, and I know we explored this in one of our live sessions of 
100% responsible. And that doesn't mean that we are condoning and it doesn't mean we like, but it just means that the only place we have real freedom is if we take responsibility for our internal reactions. We don't have to buy into being a disempowered victim. We don't have to buy into um, doubting ourselves that we can call on our inner resources to accept things or adjust things or leave. But the bottom line is knowing that um, we don't have to suffer because of another person's behavior. We can take responsibility. So communicating that to students is about the toughest truth I found and yet one of the most liberating because it's really empowering. The bottom line is there's no healing if we're acting from blame. You know, there's a, a line I uh, quote I brought into one of our live sessions that vengeance is a lazy form of grief. And when I share that with students, they get it. We know that when we're acting from fight, flight, freeze, when we're fighting, we're not really coming from our most wise resources and we're actually burying the wound that most needs attention. It keeps us from the inner work we need. Now, thus far in terms of teaching, I've been focusing on the steps that we go through as individuals and being able to dissolve the armoring of blame, you know, having the intention, making the U-turn and bringing compassion and attention inwardly and then widening to see how another has their leg in a trap and, and holding them with more care. Having our actions to take care come out of that more awake presence rather than blame. I'd like to spend the last bit um, talking about a little more how letting go of the weapon of blame is the grounds of healing for our world. Um, the, the ongoingness of uh, war and violence is really that cycling of blame, unreal othering. And so the healing that we see, whether we think of it as peace and reconciliation processes or restorative justice, uh, the healing is not coming from blame coming from this intention to establish understanding and connection. And what's so um, inspiring to me is that there's a growing number of movements of real spiritually based activism, where this is right at the heart of it. You see it in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, see it in the Poor People's Campaign, which has uh, been resurrected now, um, but followers of Martin Luther King originated it. See it in Love Army that's headed by uh, Van Jones, Revolutionary Love by Valerie Carr. So one of the questions that uh, one of you sent was what it, what it is to talk to, what it is to take responsibility, to cultivate the causes and conditions we would like to see change versus blaming others for them being as they are and how does this fit to activism? Again, just to say that rather than blaming another, or a group, or whatever it is, actually taking responsibility to change the causes and the conditions. And I wanted to share an example of this, of this activism that's not based on blame, that uh, really moved me. And this is Valerie Carr, who's a Sikh woman and a social activist. Um, and the first killing, in terms of hate crime after 9-11 was of a Sikh man who was very close to her. Uh, she called him uncle. And he was killed by a man who called himself a patriot. He said, I'm gonna go out and shoot some towel heads. We should kill their children too. So back up a little, but Valerie has a young son. And for her, her beloved was growing up in a country that was dangerous for him. And she feared about, she, she said, I fear moments that I can't protect him. He's where he is seen as a terrorist, just as black people are seen as criminals or women are seen as property. 
So she asked herself after her uncle was killed, how to respond. So here we are in a situation where there's been violence, there's been harm, how to respond. And her inner wisdom said, love more inclusively, see no one as enemy. In other words, and this is how she put it, you are part of the part of me I don't yet know. I choose to wonder about you. So what we're seeing here is step one, intention. So out of, out of that being part of this harm, sensing the harm, the hurt of it, love more inclusively. I choose to wonder about you. I love that line. I mean, I just think it's so beautiful. I choose to wonder about you. So that was step one, having that intention. Step two, the U-turn. Well, for her, she said she had to spend a lot of years bringing loving presence to her own fear and her own hurt. And as she said it, I refuse to let it harden into anger. Because when we don't pay attention to the hurt and the fear, it hardens into anger. So that's the U-turn, softening, healing inside. And then step three, how did she widen in terms of uh, the, where the harm had been encouraged? Well, she went to the gas station where the Sikh man had been killed 15 years earlier. And she and the brother of the murdered man decided to call the murderer. So this is the, the really, I wonder about you. And they called and she asked, you know, so she, she really is trying to establish connection here. And um, she asked the man, Frank, why he agreed to speak with them. And he said, I'm sorry for what happened, also for all who were killed on 9-11. And of course, she got defensive, but they continued. And uh, the, her partner, the Sikh man's brother, who was on the call, said, this is the first time you've said you're sorry. And then Frank said, yes, I'm sorry for what I did to your brother. One day when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see him and I will hug him and ask for his forgiveness. And then the uh, brother of the killed man said, but we've already forgiven you. And for Valerie, this was like a really embodiment of the teaching that in the face of suffering, the intention is to love more, to bring the presence inwardly, to do that healing so we can see the other, not as an unreal other, and then to open and include that being. She says, there's no, oppo there's no opponent, no enemy, no unreal other. So this is the path of releasing armor, of evolving consciousness, as she put it. And her, the, she was giving a talk, and the last thing she said was, one day you will see my son as your own and protect him when I'm not there. This is the possibility to create the world we believe in by learning in our individual lives, guiding our students to release blame, to disarm the heart. And then the more that we do that, the more we can see the connectedness, see the vulnerability and see the goodness. So just a bit more, again, as I mentioned, we can't will it. It's got its own timing, but we can be willing. And I uh, read a story, uh, this is uh, Frank Ossostesky, who um, you've been hearing a lot from uh, our readings from his book. Um, and he was teaching in Berlin, a workshop on, on grief and forgiveness. A woman in the back of the room stood up to talk. And she said, I've been listening to you talking about forgiveness, but my father was a prisoner in concentration camps and I can't forgive his killers. My heart is like ice. So the whole room was silent and that's the only appropriate response, bearing witness. And then from the other side of the room, a woman raised her hand and Frank said he was preparing for stories of the camps and the grief of those losses and so on. Here's what she said. My heart is like ice too. It feels like a stone. My father was a Nazi officer who was a guard in the camps. 
I know that he killed people. I can't forgive him. Again, there was silence. And then the two from these opposite sides of the room made their way through the 200 people in the conference and embraced. There's no words, they just held each other. They weren't alone in their pain. And Frank puts it, in those moments, their suffering was all of our suffering. And, and I think part of the reason that I, I love that story, um, when I read it, how much it affected me, was that when we're honest, when we're making the U-turn, we're honest, and, and even when we're not able to let go of the armoring, just by staying and naming what's true and, and, and communicating, we start making links. We start sensing others coming from more difference than we normally can relate to being part of us. And that makes it more and more possible to release the armoring and open our hearts. As many of you know, in Buddhism, uh, forgiving, this disarming, is what clears the way for love. It clears the way for namaste, where we began. We have to let go of the blame, or we can't really see the sacredness that's here. So that's the motivation. And um, it's really to inhabit our true natures, to love without holding back. That's the motivation to go through the, the real, um, have the courage to sense, yes, blaming's pervasive. We're, we, we all have that tendency, and it's possible to wake up out of the trance of blame. So perhaps with that, um, maybe we'll end with, uh, I'll invite you into the last guided meditation um, so you can explore the three steps for yourself just for a few minutes um, and then see how that might inform you when you're uh, guiding others in this domain. So again, if you will, just to close your eyes. Take a few moments to really be right here. Feeling your breath, feeling your body breathing. Again, to bring to mind some place where you feel a bit hooked in blame, person that you, not a mortal enemy, not really, not a, this won't help to go into traumatic injury and unforgiveness, but just a place of blame somewhere in the middle of the scale where you'd like to explore disarming some. And begin with your intention to sense how come this matters to you. You might even sense from your future self or wisest, most loving self, the freedom that's really possible. And then allow yourself to be reminded of um, what really has triggered off the blame. Be real and honest with yourself. Like, what is it? What's that person been doing? How have they been behaving? See, so, so you can get in touch some with the, the thoughts and feelings of blame. Making that U-turn, you know, if you had to put aside the story of blame, what's underneath it? 
What's the difficult, painful, unpleasant, vulnerable experience underneath it? Is it feeling disrespected, unloved, pushed away, powerless, afraid? You might even, as you consider this, just put your hand on your heart. So you're really creating a compassionate presence for whatever's in there. Sensing how it feels, how that vulnerability feels. Perhaps what that place that's vulnerable is believing. That person doesn't care if they act like that. Whatever it is. Letting the, the hurt or the fear or the vulnerability really be as much as it is. And sense what, as you do, what that place in you most needs. Does it need love or compassion? Does it need a sense of acceptance? Does it need to feel safe? Does it need to feel its belonging? Whatever you're sensing in there, the hand on the heart, just imagine and call on the most resourceful, evolved, loving, wise part of your being. Just offer from that place whatever comfort, nurturing, loving comes naturally. It might be a message. It could be something simple, it's okay. I'm with you, or you belong. Trust yourself. You might visualize or imagine that place really bathed in light, protection, care. Just let that all fill you. Just sensing who you are when there's a real compassionate holding of the life inside you. A sense of more space, more tenderness, more openness. You might gently open the attention to the other person now. Sensing you can view more from your more evolved self, your future self. Open-heartedness. And you may see how that person's leg is in a trap. What's difficult for that person? Sense their insecurities, their hurts, their fears. as you open to perceive that, the realness of the other, and sensing who you are when your heart's forgiving and undefended. You might sense into possibilities of how you can respond to the situation. So really viewing and experiencing from your most awake self. You might imagine if in your life this dedication to disarming became more and more conscious. What would it be like to have that kind of all-inclusive heart, that inclusivity, that boundless heart? That includes ourselves and each other, all beings. Just feel our shared prayer that we might all awaken 
from the trance of blame, of creating separations, that we might all see each other truly, see the vulnerability, the goodness, feel our connectedness, that we might wake up to offer our namaste to all life everywhere. Closing as we opened a, a namaste to each of you, loving blessings and prayers. And thank you for your presence. <laughs>